Hey everybody, welcome to the official Screenwriting Podcast number 20. I'm Adam Levenberg. This week, researching jokes. What do you do if you want to write a movie about the making of another movie? Uh, the movie Pain and Gain I'll talk about real quickly, and then I'm going to jump into The Guilt Trip. But if you haven't seen The Guilt Trip and you want a spoiler-free experience, I'll remind you again, just turn off the podcast when I get to it. I'm going to cover it last, so you can just bail at that point. Um, so first up, I, I read another under-90-page script this week. They don't work, and if you're going to write a 90-page script, make sure that it's perfectly structured. Make sure you go in intending to write a 90-page script and that you have all of your beats. You just push them back a little bit doing the necessary math in order to figure out where you're supposed to hit the various points of the script because it really didn't work, uh, this script that I read, and it shows a lack of craftsmanship. Again, genres that you can do that in contain thriller under 90 pages, okay. Uh, maybe a horror movie, 90 pages, okay. Anything other than that is is probably some writer thinking that they're supposed to be between 90 and 120 and they're done, but having no higher level of craftsmanship than that. Um, all right, so finding jokes. Okay, this week I read a script or did a consultation on a script that had a bunch of 80s music star impersonators at a club. It was sort of a random thing. And there's a joke involving a Madonna impersonator. And it wasn't incredibly funny. And I said to the writer, like, this is a huge star. If you want to look up Michael Jackson jokes or Madonna jokes, that is, you know, you don't have to create those on your own because they've already been written. Comedians have been doing it for 30 years. And it literally took me 10 seconds of research. And when I say research, I mean putting in Madonna jokes into Google in order to click, find and then click on a page. It took me to a whole list of jokes. And most of them were um, generic slut shaming jokes. Like there was one <laughs> cute one like, what's the difference between Madonna and a Kit Kat? You only get four fingers and a Kit Kat. Now that's not a joke written about Madonna. That is a joke that somebody ripped off that has been used in various uh, forms. It's sort of an old school joke, I'm sure, and I'm nearly certain it wasn't written about her, but yet it would get a laugh from an audience. And here's the thing about finding humor. You find it, you don't write it. The chances, you know, you could use a bumper sticker to get across a, um, whether it's a hero, supporting character, whoever it is, you could use a bumper sticker to give us a great piece of character information about them. What's their perspective on the world? You don't have to write that bumper sticker because the chances that you're going to come up with something that's better than something else that's out there, but maybe not incredibly popular, is zero. You're not gonna do it. Um, if you did, you'd be in the, I'm creating bumper stickers business. So the uh, the idea is to to use the internet and find those jokes and repurpose them. You know, I love the line in um, The Long Kiss Goodnight where Samuel L. Jackson says, well, you made an assumption, and when you make an assumption, you make an ass out of you and umption. Um, you know, that's a takeoff on the old, if you assume you make an ass out of you or me joke. But even the assumption joke, I, you know, if I had to put money on it, I would say, I don't think Shane Black who wrote the script, I don't think that he wrote that. I think he heard it somewhere and he thought it was funny. Um, I could be wrong about that, but you know, Shane Black will literally have characters tell jokes to each other just to get pump a laugh out of the audience. And it works, please, if you're a comedy writer, use it. I remember reading a really funny script that had, well, I'd be dating myself if I went, uh, 
I, I don't need to get into it. But there was a T-shirt, and I remember friends talking about, oh, what, that t what was written on that T-shirt was so funny. And, you know, that wasn't, I don't know that it was something the writers came up with, but they don't get any more credit if they did. They, the laugh is in the script. And as long as it's not something that everybody's seen, then go for it. Re, you know, use jokes that are out there. Watch old sitcoms if you need to. You know, you have a problem if you lift 50 lines from the same show. But if you take a line here and there, um, you're good. And, you know, it's a way to pump in five, six new jokes into a script. Now, you know, again, here's the thing. The chances that these jokes will get a laugh really high. The chances that they will remain in the finished script that is sold, developed, and filmed incredibly low. And in the case that you do something like, say, rip off a bumper sticker, um, there's something called the, I think it's the clearance department uh, does that, where the person who does clearances for a movie will check things like, for example, if there's a character name in the movie, uh, let's say the character's name is Steve Jones, say. Um, they have to go and check that there is, for example, um, no more than six Steve Jones in the United States of America. And if there's more than six Steve Jones, then they can use the name. If not, they have to change the name or they have to like get the rights, I guess, from those people's names. Same thing I would guess with anything like a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. Um, you would probably, you know, search to make sure nobody owns it and copyrighted it. And by the way, if they did, if they, if the clearance department found it, then they could always go to that bumper sticker company. If the director and producers wanted that joke in, they could always go to the bumper sticker company and say, Hey, we'll pay you three grand so that we can use your bumper sticker. And I'm sure any bumper sticker company would say, sure. So, you know, it would only help them sell more bumper stickers. So, you know, you can borrow a lot of your laughs, especially if you're a comedy writer and a lot of writers do that. Again, it's a cheap laugh. It's, it's not A-plus screenwriting, but if you can get a couple of jokes out of there, there's a really good chance that nobody will pick up on where you got it from. And it can definitely, you know, six extra laughs can definitely um, smooth over some of the lulls in the comedy writing. So that's something to keep in mind. I got a great question. What if you want to write a movie about the making of a film? Of course, that's a rights nightmare. That's a rights nightmare because you have to have the rights to the film. You have to have the rights, the life rights of all the people involved and the characters. And it's it, and, and often the only way that you're getting a lot of the information that went on behind the scenes is to use specific information that comes from articles and or books about the making of that, and then you need the rights to that also. It's difficult. You don't need the rights to dead people's uh, life rights, but you know, once somebody's dead, you can do whatever the heck you want. But if people are still alive, I believe that you have to pay them, unless maybe they were involved in a crime. You know, I just saw Pain and Gain last night, and I, I'm pretty sure that you know these guys who were on death row um, did not participate in the making of the film or, or get paid for, you know, their story and their life rights, although their names are used. So in any case, but I do have some specific advice, which is if you're going to do that, that, make it huge, make it a huge movie and you're not going to get the rights up front. It's not possible. You know, the guy who wrote Chewie did not get the rights up front. Um, to Star Wars, but he delivered a great script. By the way, Chewie is the making of Star Wars told from the perspective of the 
really, really tall guy, British guy who actually was not really an actor at the time, um, you know, told from his perspective. And you want to do that. You want to have an interesting perspective. You want to make sure that your character has an arc or everybody else around the character has an arc. And, you know, the re I think Chewie's going to get made one day. And the reason for that is because Star Wars is always going to be huge. We're going to have Star Wars movies every year for the, every year for the next decade, starting in a year or two. Starting in a year or two. So, um, you know, I think it's the kind of thing where you will get tons of attention for it. And if you can get tons of attention and you do it in a way that is loving enough, that is not completely trashing everybody involved, then you can likely maybe even see a script sale. Or there's always the possibility that if it's if you're dealing with a project that where you still have somebody who's powerful they can end up getting the script bought just because they don't want somebody else to buy it and make it um you know that happened with the muppet man which was a very popular script and it was popular enough again it was about the jim henson's life and you know it starts off with kermit the frog you know drunk and unshaved and we see that he you know miss uh, piggy's wedding invitation is sitting there um, to, she's about to marry somebody else and it sort of goes between the imagination of Jim Henson the puppet world and, and Jim Henson's biography but the writer of it and that was by the way a number one script on the blacklist that year the writer of it didn't happen to really do much research about the life of Jim Henson though I believe I believe it was more of a I'm going to use all the characters we know and here's this guy who actually um, created this stuff uh, but you know everything after that was kind of made up and you know the henson family bought the script so i guess the writer won you know the movies probably will never be made in fact i i would put money on that but um you know who cares the writer got paid got a a project out of it and got a sale out of it and went on to do a lot of work for other people um even this year on the blacklist there was a making of jaws movie that made it onto the blacklist so that's my advice. If you want to do the making of The Godfather, you know, that is something everybody wants to read. Just like, you know, that Rodham script about Hillary Rodham Clinton. Like that, you know, if you write a biography of somebody who, who everybody's interested in, then they're going to want to take a look at it. And that can get your script read. So it's a, it's a calculated risk, you know, that you could end up with a piece of material that a lot of people want to look at, but nobody could buy. And, you know, often to get a script like that sold, it requires some power players to get involved with it. Um, but, you know, it can be worth it if you're at the point in your career where you're still crying out to get attention. You know, something to consider. But again, you know, my feeling always is that you don't need to cry out for attention. If there is, there's still stuff you need to learn about the writing. That's why I consult with writers. Um, you can, reminder, you can hire me to read your script, 299 bucks right now uh, that's a special or the $99 concept consultation $99 concept consultation I talk to you for an hour you can submit up to five pages of log lines a scene a short film whatever it is um, and I'll talk to you on the phone for an hour with the 299 consult I will read your script put note make notations on it write up a set of notes email all that to you and then we talk for an unlimited amount of time until we're done going through the entire script and all the notes uh, and you can get my book at the startersscreenplay.com personally autographed free shipping plus i have new classes starting at the director's playhouse and i think we're even we may bring the price down and it's in the in discussion so um and it's a six-week course that's going to start in the next couple of weeks so you can email me or go to directorsplayhouse.com for more information about that okay um, so I saw Pan and Gain last night. I'm not going to talk about it too much, 
but I'm sure that you know that it is the Michael Bay comedy. That's right, a Michael Bay comedy about, and a true story about a group of bodybuilders who kidnapped a man and forced him to sign over all of his possessions and homes and all that kind of stuff. And then um, when that guy went to the police after he escaped with his life, uh, you know, the police didn't believe him. And it took months and months of detective work and private investigator work uh, in order to bring the bodybuilders to justice. So, you know, the thing about this movie is it sort of exists in the world of absurdist dark humor. Again, you know, remember, people always say, oh, I want to write like a dark comedy or a black comedy. Black comedies are about heroes with ugly or uh, negative goals. And in this case, it's a negative goal. We're going to kidnap this guy and force him under basically torture uh, to sign away all of his possessions. And then we're going to keep it because I work hard and that's the American dream. Um, that is a, a twisted vision of the world. And that would only work as a comedy, which this is. Uh, it's a really ugly comedy and it's pretty badass. So, you know... You've been warned if you... It's definitely worth checking out. I'll put it that way. There's some great performances. The Rock is amazing. And, you know, again, we want to put... We, we have such an ugly, dark um, concept here that... And I don't know whether this was part of the original article that the movie was based on. I haven't read it or based on the true story. But, you know, the fun thing is that Mark Wahlberg has this plan. He's a personal trainer who wants to rip off one of his wealthy clients and he ends up teaming up with The Rock, who just got out of prison and found Jesus in prison and is all about religion and sobriety. And, you know, he is a paragon of virtue, except he's participating in the illegal kidnapping of an innocent. And that, of course, plays into the plot quite a bit. And, and a lot of the humor in the script works there. And it's fun because it's not necessarily anti-religion. I, I sort of like that. I like when you don't have to be mean about the topic in order to have fun with the idea of what the characters are doing. Another example of that that I love is um, in uh, Harold and Kumar 3D, there's a, a joke where this Russian mobster sits down and turns on the TV and he's watching... a a Tyler Perry Medea movie and he's sitting there laughing hysterically too and I like that because a lot of people um, you know Tyler Perry sometimes his films are looked down upon or mocked or you know and here it's not mocking the film and, and mocking a target that is often made unfair fun of I guess um, but it's it's just the the joke is that it's a Russian mobster who's really into something that we wouldn't expect him to be into um, so, in any case, moving on, I'm going to talk about the guilt trip now. Uh, well, actually, first, I'll start with talking a little bit about uh, a, an amazing movie called Yentl, because I, watching uh, this reminded me of Yentl, which I only saw for the first time a couple of years ago. As a reminder, Yentl was made in 1983. It was a film that Barbara Streisand uh, adapted from a book and had tried to get made for 15 years, had tried to get this film made. And finally had the juice to get it done in 1983. But by that time, she was 40 years old. And the story is about a, an 18-year-old Russian girl whose father is a rabbi and teaching her the Torah, something that women are not traditionally taught. And her father dies. So she chops up off her hair, pretends to be an 18-year-old boy, and 
Raymond uh, joins the rabbinical school in order to study Torah, where she makes a best friend played by Manny Patinkin, um, and of course starts falling in love with her best friend who thinks that she's a boy. And it's an, in, I mean, it's an insanely sort of complicated, uncommercial concept on top of the fact that by the time Barbara Streisand got that movie made, she was 40 years old playing an 18-year-old. And it really shouldn't have worked. Plus, she was one of the first women to like ever direct a major studio film on top of that. Think of how, how far we've come in, in, you know, some people say we haven't come far enough when it comes to female directors. But here, this is uh, one of the first times that a woman ever was allowed to direct a studio film. Uh, with a decent budget and it was her first time ever directing now she did have a lot of uh, I've read a little bit about it because the movie blew me away she did have a lot of help from William Wyler who some of you know is the director of uh, Ben-Hur and he also directed her in Funny Girl and he was a mentor to her and I think helped her with the development of the project and I don't know I think he might have been dead by the time the movie got made but um, you know you have one of sort of the great directors of all time sort of helping uh, with the process and the cool thing about this movie also is that it's a musical on top of it But it's not a real musical nobody sings and dances and breaks story in order to do that It's all done in mind screen. It's all done because she is so she has nobody to talk to she's completely cut off from the world and The way that we get an insight into her which is a challenge that usually you have to give a character other a hero other characters who know what's going on who know what the secret is in this case that she's pretending to be a boy and that she's really a woman um this movie doesn't provide that to her immediately but it does have these music sequences where their songs there's you know if you see her singing it's a mind screen it's not breaking out into song with dancing with other characters joining in it's all about just where she is in the course of the story plot um, and of course this movie should not work. There's no reason it works and it does. That's what's so amazing about it. I almost bailed on this movie though, because it is slow. It's an older movie. It's a drama. It's untraditional to, to say the least. And watching it, I, you know, after 30 minutes, I was like, okay, I've seen enough. I stuck with it though. And there's a great problem solving incident I'll talk about real quickly. Um, one of the challenges that is provided to Yentl is that her best friend wants to marry the character played by Amy Irving. But for some reason, I don't know what it is, but they can't get married. I can't remember what it was. So he says to his best friend, hey, I'm in love with this woman. I want you to marry her. That way, at least she doesn't get sent away to some other village. And I can at least have that little part of her in my life and know that she's being taken care of and see her and, you know, still have her in my life in some way. It's a really sad and challenging situation that our character, is, Yentl, is forced into. So she's forced into marrying this character. Now, a shitty screenplay would put this near the end. Because at that point, you would think, wow, this is about to be revealed. You know, the hero does not have a penis and she's getting married and, you know, um, but it's like an hour into the movie where we have a wedding to this, uh, you know, to this other, to this woman. And then, of course, they are literally pushed up the stairs and thrown into a bedroom where they're supposed to consummate the marriage immediately following the wedding. And it's like, oh, shit, what is this character going to do? And it turns into, and both characters are scared and neither of them are really attracted to each other. That's not the situation. Um, it's not really a romantic marriage. Um, and the way that the tension is broken and the scene progresses is that they get into a pillow fight. 
and they start having a lot of fun and they're just bashing the shit out of each other and laughing and you know and <laughs> of course you have to cut to a shot of people outside the room being like what the hell is going on in there because you know the headboard's banging and there's things flying across the room um and we have this really you know huge buildup of tension followed by an interesting you know character decision and way of solving a really specific problem and then adding jokes on top of that and then there's a nice moment after where you see they're each lying in their respective beds because there's two beds in the room and Amy Irving puts her hand on Yentl's uh, knee and says I think I'm, I might enjoy being married to you you know and they they have this nice moment so in any case um it is a really cool movie. I highly recommend you check it out. And if you're a romantic comedy writer, check out The Mirror Has Two Faces, which is the last film. Barbara Streisand only directed three films, um, and it was a romantic comedy. And at the time, you know, both Yentl and the other movie, The Prince of Tides, were looked at as basically Oscar bait. And, you know, The Prince of Tides was nominated for Best Picture. Barbara Streisand was not nominated either time, which is why they had her give the award to... Uh, uh, Catherine Bigelow but um, you know the third movie that she made was looked at as sort of a it was a romantic comedy with Jeff Bridges called The Mirror Has Two Faces and it's written by Richard Legravenes who wrote the movie The Ref by the way The Ref is now streaming on YouTube if you haven't seen The Ref give it a couple of minutes it's Kevin Spacey Judy Davis and it is brilliant it is it is you know who's afraid of Virginia Woolf you know level uh, biting, you know, uh, insightful drama, but it is laugh out loud funny. It's vicious. I and and it you know goes in a really interesting to an interesting place. Um, so she does this romantic comedy, and I'm going to recommend it only for people who want to write romantic comedies, um, because the interesting thing is that there's so much substance to it. At the time, it was looked at as wow, you know, usually she does prestige material. This is just a romantic comedy. And I, I would recommend it only because it has so much character um, insight and, and the character's behavior and their, their own motivations are not incredibly external. There's not a lot of lying going on. It's a, an interesting situation about a woman who ends up in this relationship with the guy. Oh, here's the thing. It's about a, a professor played by Jeff Bridges has recently, I guess, been cheated on by his beautiful girlfriend. And he says, I'm done with pretty women. I'm done with beautiful women. I'm done with a relationship where it's all about physical attraction and ends up in a situation where Barbara Streisand's sister, maybe that's the, the lie. Because in romantic comedies, you usually have some people lying. I think it's her sister answers the ad and sends, you know, I forget if there was even a picture involved, but responds to it and puts them on a date together. And, you know, Barbara Streisand's character is, you know, single and doesn't really believe in herself and is really frumpy and intelligent but you know not a a catch in her own eyes let alone somebody else's and it's sort of about how that dynamic plays out and the relationship between her and jeff bridges develops so if you are interested in writing a romantic comedy go back and look at that just because there's so much more substance to it you know i know there's a lot of discussion of why do romantic comedies suck and often it's because they work really well on the plot level um, because often there's a high concept behind them, but the, the character work is missing. And here's a movie where really it's, it's mainly the character work uh, that attracted top talent to the material. Okay, so moving on to the guilt trip, and I am going to talk about the ending. So for those of you, I'll, I'll see you next week if uh, you're not interested in hearing about it. Um, 
Robert Altman, the great film director, complained probably about 20 years ago that the sole origin of Hollywood or Disney storytelling was O. Henry. And if you don't know who O. Henry is, I'm surprised because, you know, you probably should know that if you're listening to this. But O. Henry is a, an old school uh, writer who started writing around the early 1900s. And he wrote stories like Gift of the Magi that have great twist endings that really tie everything up nicely. Um, the most famous gift of the Magi is about a young couple who are short of money but desperately want to buy each other Christmas gifts. Uh, the wife sells her most valuable possession, her hair, in order to buy a platinum chain for her husband's watch. Her husband sells his watch in order to buy jeweled combs for his wife's hair. And, of course, at the end they give the gifts to each other, but they're useless because they, you know, but, but it... It shows that it doesn't matter because it's, they're just things, and it the the purpose of the gift is to show love, and that is completely accomplished, even though the gifts are now worthless and unusable because the the heroes love each other to sell their most prized possessions, and that is enough to make a happy ending. And then there's another cute one about two men who kidnap a ten year old boy, and the boy turns out to be such a bratty and obnoxious kid that the men desperately pay the boy's father money to return him. So they hold him ransom, and then they end up paying to return him. By the way, that's sort of the, the idea of Ruthless People, which is a great movie. Incidentally, I did see Parental Guidance, or I saw the first 20 minutes of Parental Guidance this week, and turned it off. Um, I, I referenced that because Bette Midler's in both of them. Um, and, and I'm a fan of Billy Crystal. If you're interested in Bette Midler movies, see Ruthless People. It's the last movie directed by the team that did Airplane. Last movie was directed by the team that did Airplane. And if you like Billy Crystal, watch City Slickers again. That's all I got to say about that. Um, okay, so Robert Altman complained about this. You know, it's a complaint. It's a fair complaint, I guess. It must be very frustrating to a guy, you know, who likes to dig a little bit deeper. Um, unfortunately, that's not how Hollywood works. And I like talking about that because he was complaining like it was a bad thing. But when it works, it works so beautifully that... You know, we forgive the, the, the storytellers for doing that. Not only that, but in a movie, just like short stories, you don't have a lot of time. You know, if every episode of a TV show ended like that, if every episode of Game of Thrones ended like that, you'd be like, wow, this is just, this universe, just everything settles way too fucking perfectly. But in a movie, you know, you have 90 minutes or an hour and, you know, 40 minutes in order to get a story like The Guilt Trip across. And you have to wrap it up in a neat little bow. And if you can, you know, it's interesting to talk about this film because the film, for those of you who haven't seen it and don't know what I'm talking about, uh, Seth Rogen goes home. Uh, he is a scientist, a chemist, who's created a brilliant new cleaning uh, solution. It's a or all organic Windex type uh, product called SioClean, and it's it's soy and it's coconut oil, and you can drink it, but it cleans better than anything else on earth and he's having trouble selling it. So he flies home to, to spend a little bit of time with mom because I think that's where his first, uh, first sales pitch is. And ends up realizing, you know, his mom, played by Barbara Streisand, is pushing 70, hasn't dated since Seth Rogen's father died when he was eight years old. And Seth Rogen hasn't had a successful relationship either. So, you know, he's sort of pushing his mom to jump back in and, 
you know, jump back into the dating pool and we have a scene where he takes her to a singles mixer and she keeps sort of blowing off all the guys who are interested in her. And she sits down with him after and tells him about her history and that when she, at the time she was dating his father, she was dating another guy. And she was in love like crazy with this other guy. And when Seth Rogen's father proposed, she went to the other guy and said, hey, this other guy proposed to me. Like, you know, hey, can you can you match that deal? And the other guy said, well, then you should marry him and rejected her. And the guy's name was Andy. And she named Seth Rogen's character Andy after this dude, the guy who got away. <laughs> and Seth Rogen, like, can't believe this. Like, he's like, you named me after your ex-boyfriend who kind of blew you off. And you know, we have this situation where he then immediately goes and looks up the guy online and finds him uh, and, you know, within seconds calls the guy's office and he's, you know, uh, unmarried or whatever. So, and I, th I don't know if they, they play that, by the way. It, in fact, the fact that this guy is not married only comes up much later in the movie. I didn't notice it in that scene where, uh, you know, he... I, I don't know how they quite got that across, or maybe it was just an oversight. Uh, that's the kind of thing that you might put in the note. Um, you know, we need to show that he finds out here that this guy's unmarried. But um, it could have just been something that I wasn't paying attention to and thought about after. In any case, um, so Seth Rogen keeps it a secret. Because remember, in all, almost all comedies, you have characters keeping secrets from each other. And he says to his mom, hey, mom, I, I would like for you to come on this cross-country road trip with me because I have sales meetings all over the country. And why don't you come with me? And, you know, I know that the trip was supposed to end in Vegas, but now I have one more sales pitch in San Francisco, which, of course, is not where he has a sales pitch. It's where uh, this guy, Andy, lives. And he wants to reunite his mom and Andy. So we have these two characters going on the road together. Um, you have a lot of traditional, somewhat borderline offensive, uh, you know, Jewish mother jokes going on with the Barbara Streisand character, uh, a lot of which I, I identified with and found really funny. And, you know, we have this situation where, um, you know, the movie sort of, the movie definitely stumbles or doesn't give these characters enough to do. And we know that because at one point, you know, we have a whole eight minute sequence where they end up in a Texas barbecue place and she eats a four pound steak um, in an hour. And this Texan dude comes over and helps her with it uh, and says, oh, this is, you know, it's like an eating contest thing where you have to pay a hundred bucks if you don't eat it. But if you do eat the whole thing, it's free. And she has been established as somebody who loves to eat. So she does it. And this Texan guy comes over and helps her and gives her some strategy and then asks her out after and says, hey, I'm in New York on business every month. I'd like to take you out to dinner. And she takes his number and says, eh, you know, not really for me. I don't really date. Um, and at All is Lost, Seth Rogen reveals the purpose of the trip. And Barbara Streisand's incredibly hurt because she wanted this trip to be about her son wanting to spend time with her. And that wasn't the case. He, he had an ulterior motive behind it. And even though it's a nice, and, and I like this situation, because even though it's a nice ulterior motive, he's trying to do something nice for her. It still hurts to her. And, you know, the character digs it even deeper because he says, well, that wasn't the only reason. And we're watching the hurt on her face. And he says, I also wanted to meet this guy, Andy. 
<laughs> you know, you think he's about to say, well, I also want to spend time with you. And, you know, that doesn't happen. Of course, you know, one of the issues that's going on along the way is that every meeting is being blown, every sales meeting. Seth Rogen can't sell anything. And it's because his sales pitch is all wrong because he gets into talking too much chemistry. And in the meeting, right, you know, his mom says, well, you know, why don't you do something? Drink a little bit. Put it on your skin. Show them instead of just telling them all about the, you know, the chemi boring chemistry stuff. Um, and, of course, right after that all-is-lost moment, we have sort of that final mission happen where it's his last sales pitch. It's now on camera for HSN. Interestingly, they got the rights for all these big companies. They use uh, Costco and Orchard Supply Warehouse. Um, and in this case, it's HSN. He does an on-camera demonstration of it and sees that everybody is just bored out of their mind and that he's totally lost everybody. And he says... Yeah, and then he, he uses the information that his mom gave him. And by the way, his mom sneaks in so that she's sort of watching when it happens because you need that moment. Um, and he uses what his mom has taught him uh, in order to get everybody's attention back. And he asks the host some questions about her family and her pets and says, well, wouldn't you like you know, to keep them safe? And you know, your cleaning products are incredibly toxic. Mine isn't. I'm going to prove it to you. And he drinks some of it and everybody laughs and is paying attention and he makes a potential sale out of it. Um, so he uses what his mother has taught him over the course of the journey in order to solve his big problem. But then we still have the resolution of the storyline of he's got to reconnect his mom and Andy. And they show up at this guy's doorstep in San Francisco. Uh, she calls his office. We actually have a scene where she calls his office in the car and she gets him on the phone and she's too freaked out and she hangs up and she says, I can't do it. I can't do it. Let's just go there and I'll you know, see him in person and deal with it then. Um, so, of course, the guy, you know, a young guy, Adam Scott, comes to the door and says, yeah, we're looking for Andy. And he says, well, I'm Andy. And, of course, it turns out that Andy, the father, is his father, and his father's been dead for years. And, it's a, and you know, once he realizes that these aren't traveling salesmen, that she was an old friend, he says, well, why don't you come in? And she goes, yeah, I'd like to sit down. And we have this scene where he talks a little bit about his father and she's looking at all the pictures of her ex-boyfriend's life that are on the fireplace mantle. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, how are we going to pay this off? This is incredibly depressing. This is like she's traveled all this way. And, you know, that's the premise of her being in the car. And we've now set up that this guy is dead. And by the way, it'd be a little too perfect if he just dropped mom off out off at Andy's house and Andy was still there and they fell in love or picked up where they like that wouldn't have worked either. So you sort of have to have a scene like this where we're not going to complete the mission that we thought, except as they're wrapping up and as they're about to head out, this young girl walks in. And Andy says, hey, I'd like you to introduce you to my younger sister, Joyce. This is Andy. And, and of course, um, and he was referring to his sister when he said Joyce, that that is the, the completion of that storyline. That even though she's not going to get to reconnect with her ex-boyfriend because he's dead, that relationship meant something to him just like it meant something to her. And it is proven by the fact that he named his daughter after the woman who got away or that wasn't meant to be, but that he truly loved and appreciated. And that's what that settles. It settles it. It says that he felt the same way about that relationship that she did. And that's all the completion you need. And it's perfect. 
because we don't and, and and by the way i give the movie credit i'm certain they discussed this i there might even be filmed footage of this but they didn't go there which is i was like oh shit are they gonna have like seth rogan have a moment with this girl and maybe like trade phone numbers and the idea is that you know he's going to end up with her uh this you know younger joyce uh as a result of this um because there is the you know seth rogan is unmarried and hasn't had a successful relationship storyline that would have been a way to end it they didn't go there and you know right or wrong again this is a studio movie studio movies don't dig deep i almost feel like talking about it now that i've said it out loud i was relieved personally because i don't like it when things are just that you know sickeningly sweet perfect but they totally could have gone there they could have gotten away with it. It would not have ruined the movie. And the way that you do that is that you don't show him putting a ring on her finger. You introduce it. You show them having a nice moment and maybe trading phone numbers or saying, you know, her saying, hey, do you ever come up to San Francisco? Or, oh, you know, I was planning on moving down to L.A. or I'm interviewing for jobs in Los Angeles uh, next month. So, you know, like something like that. And um, they could have done that. They didn't. I'm not going to fault it either way, but it's. I guarantee you it's something everybody talked about. Um, so the movie just wraps up right after that. They're in the airport. Seth Rogen and his mom say goodbye, and she talks a little bit about the fact that her relationship with Andy was not meant to be. That's not what her life was meant to be about. Her life was meant to marry Seth Rogen's father and to, to be his mom. And, you know... Um, she's now going to move on with her life. And the way that we see that is when they separate, she picks up the phone, and her cell phone, and she calls the Texan guy. And we see her walk off, and we see Seth Rogen walk off for his plane, and the credits come up in the airport. Um, so, you know, it's a really nice ending. Again, this movie was given really mixed reviews by critics. Nobody loved it. A lot of critics liked it. A lot of those who didn't like it did like it. It was one of those like where it probably got a lot of two and two and a half star reviews because it doesn't give the characters enough conflict along the way. And it chooses not to put them in really traditional um, high comedy. You know, there's not a lot of physical comedy in it. In fact, there's virtually none. Um, it chooses not to put them in those situations. And I think that that works because, you know, you have movies like Monster-in-Law where they went back and shot stuff like, um, you know, J-Lo drugging Jane Fonda and Jane Fonda falling into a plate of spaghetti and stuff like that just to have more trailer moments. And it really doesn't work and, and was not sort of the original script. Um, you know, incidentally, written by Richard Legravenez, who wrote uh, wrote The Mirror Has Two Faces and The Ref that I was talking about. But... Um, in this case, they don't go there. It, it's just, you know, the interaction between a mother and a son. And it's funny enough, that's where the humor comes from. The humor comes from the sort of straight man played by Seth Rogen uh, playing off of the wild and crazy mom because, you know, older moms say the darndest things. And they capture enough funny bits from her that it certainly makes it for an enjoyable watch. And you're watching a movie, you know, I think Seth Rogen's one of the greatest talents who's out there right now. Um, and remember, he, he has a movie coming out that he just directed. He's written a lot of his movies. He didn't write this. Dan Fogelman did. Dan Fogelman also wrote Bolt and Crazy Stupid Love, uh, which are two very different types of movies. And, you know, in, in this case, uh, you have him starring against one of the great screen legends who has an interesting character with a lot of different levels. Still, though, in the guise of a relatively simple storyline and, you know, it's, it's fun to watch. Um, I, I don't think without those two in it that I probably would have gotten through the movie. 
because uh, because again, it doesn't give enough these characters enough to do. Um, you know, it sends them to it. Break their car breaks down. They end up at a strip club. Um, the strippers help them fix the car. You know, it's it, it's really simple stuff. There's a scene where his mom they get in a fight and his mom goes to the bar in the hotel and is surrounded by a bunch of dudes who've gotten her drunk and one of them tries to serve her a drink and he says no. You know uh and ends up getting punched you know there's there's little scenes like that but the really i i don't know if i have an answer maybe that's why it didn't happen how you could have turned the comedy levels up without sacrificing that it's very much a dramatic character piece with a lot of funny humorous interactions i did laugh before the main credits were over and i i guess or the opening credits i laughed twice during the opening credits I, I don't know what more you say about a movie. Anyway, uh, that's all for this week. Maybe next week I'll talk Iron Man. You know, I was thinking, do I want to see this? Do I not? I haven't seen Iron Man 3, but Shane Black wrote and directed it. Uh, Shane Black is one of my favorite filmmakers. I love The Long Kiss Goodnight. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is one of the greatest films that I've seen in the last decade, and it's so good. It's a $10 million budget movie that got Shane Black the ability to direct Iron Man 3. It showed that he knew what he was doing and that Robert Downey Jr. trusted him and that he could be trusted with the budget. And they gave him a $250 million, which is what I presume it was, Iron Man 3 was, uh, budget as a result of it. So again, that's all for this week. You can go to officialscreenwriting.com, hire me to read your script, hire me for a concept consultation, or take my class, Director's Playhouse in LA. There's a, generally a new class starting up, so whenever you're listening to this, check in. And even if you can't make all the classes, you can come to some of them. I'm, I'm playing around with it. So that is all for this week. I'll be back next week with Iron Man 3.